Well, good morning again. We're continuing on in our series in Advent, third third part in our series today. And the theme for today is joy. And so to preface this, I have a little video clip that I want to show for you as we begin looking at the subject of joy today. And uh, this is a a commercial that ran in the late 90s. It's one of my all-time favorites. Uh, Jeremy's going to cue it up for you and see if you recognize this little clip. We have, folks, a large pepperoni pizza. A Pepsi, please. A Pepsi. Sure thing, Curly. Here you go, Cupcake. Thank you. I should listen very carefully to what I'm going to tell you. We both know I ordered a Pepsi Cola, and now you've insulted me and my entire family by offering me this. Remember this. For being a civilized person, I'd like to give you a chance to make amends. Capisce? few of you do. That's one of my all-time favorites. Now, as cute as that ad is, I'd like to focus on the tagline at the end of the commercial. The joy of cola. The joy of cola. Now, at the risk of all, uh, offending all of you Pepsi lovers out there, let me tell you that finding joy in Pepsi Cola is complete and utter nonsense. But hold on, let me equally offend you Coke lovers out there. So is finding joy in Coca-Cola. Or in any other beverage, for that matter. Because, yes, as clever as advertisers like Pepsi are, they know that all people have a basic desire for joy. And so they will advertise and pitch their products in such a way to make us believe that drinking their product, drinking Pepsi, will somehow provide us with joy so that we will buy their product. But of course, the reality is that whatever level of temporary joy that we get from a can of Pepsi or Coke or anything else, it's it's fleeting at best. And it's the exact same with all types of consumerism, especially at Christmas time. You know, as kids, we think we'll have joy if mom and dad get me exactly what I want. Anyone ever thought that before? I had to laugh. I saw on Facebook... Um, one guy had posted this picture of the ultimate G.I. Joe aircraft carrier. And the tagline was, the 29th anniversary of me not getting this for Christmas. (laughs) I think most of us could identify with something that was your dream, that you asked for every Christmas, but it never showed up. And you thought, if I could only have that, then I'd be joyful. Or maybe on the flip side, when now, if if you're a parent, you think, If I can just buy my child that perfect gift, then they will finally stop complaining and be happy for once. Parents, have you ever thought that? But again, even if we get that ultimate thing, whatever it is, whatever level of joy is achieved, it is fleeting at best. Quick survey here. Kids out there, how many of you are still playing with the toys you got last Christmas? Yeah, there's one hand. 
Okay, I see another hand back there. That's pretty good. You're still playing with some of the toys from last Christmas. But then let me add this one for you. Um, who here would say that the toys you got last Christmas were so good that you don't need any more gifts this Christmas? Anyone? Anyone not need gifts this Christmas? Okay, we're being honest now. My hand's not going up either. You see, something most of us know, most of us know this, but we still need constant reminding of is this. True joy cannot be bought. It cannot be bought. It cannot be found in the ultimate G.I. Joe aircraft carrier, the coolest Lego set, or Barbie mansion, or whatever your dream toy is. And for those of us who are a bit older, it cannot be parked in a garage or driven through a field. It cannot be seen in large numbers on an investment portfolio or attained by living in a bigger house. And yet, everyone still desires joy. In fact, I would argue that the pursuit of it is one of the basic desires and motivations of every life. Now, you've probably noticed that so far I have not been using the word happy but the word joy. For though joy and happiness are very closely related, in fact, we usually use them interchangeably, there is a fundamental difference between being joyful and being happy, having joy or just being happy. There's a difference. And I would sum it up this way. The emotion of happiness typically comes and goes with our circumstances, our outer circumstances, and the things that put a smile on our face. But joy, the kind that the Bible talks about so often, repeatedly in fact, joy is mentioned throughout scripture. The kind of joy the Bible is talking about can still be ours, a possession, a treasure, even when outer circumstances aren't so good. In fact, outer circumstances can be terrible and negative. And sometimes our eyes can even be filled with tears. And yet the Bible says we can still have joy as a treasure. So the question, of course, is how can we, how can you and I have that type of joy? And that's what we want to focus on this morning. So I would invite you now to bow with me as we enter God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your word we find truth. We find the ultimate truth for our lives. Because, Lord, what we're talking about this morning, joy, it's something so deep, something so desired by each one of us. We desire to have joy in our lives. And yet, Lord, we recognize that we so often attempt to fill it the wrong way. We think circumstantial, temporary happiness will give us what we need for joy. Advertisers even think that we can find joy in a can of Pepsi-Cola or Coca-Cola or anything else that we, we think will satisfy us somehow. And yet, Lord, we know from experience that it always, it always leaves us wanting more. It's never good enough. It never lasts. Whatever level of happiness is achieved, it's temporary. And still, we're not fully satisfied. And so, Lord, we recognize that the kind of joy we're wired for, the kind our souls are looking for, can be found only in you and be received from you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we open your word this morning, you would open our hearts to understand and to receive the joy that only you can provide. I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, the first principle that I'd like to bring to your attention this morning, our first point, if you will, if you're taking notes and following along that way, is this. Number one, joy comes not in presence, but in a person. 
Joy comes not in presence, but in a person. In our call to worship this morning, Luke chapter 2, verse 10, the familiar words we've all heard or probably recited a, a thousand times, the angel speaking to the shepherds on the hillsides outside of Bethlehem. He says this, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Now, perhaps the most well-known of all Christmas carols, we haven't sung it yet this morning. I think we probably will at the closing. Henry, you can take note of that. <laughs> I was going to tell you earlier. I'll tell you now. But it's, it's one that probably if I were to ask you right now, it goes along with the theme, what's the most well-known of Christmas carols? It's called what? Exactly. You guys even said it in unison. It was like you were practicing. Joy to the world. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Now, my friends, the reality of the incarnation, and I'll just throw that out there right now. The incarnation is the big fancy word that we use to say that God the Son became a literal flesh and blood man who came to earth. He became flesh incarnate. So therefore, he, the incarnation, the incarnation, Jesus taking on flesh and blood, becoming a man, being born, living, dying, and being resurrected, all in order to save us. And I cannot possibly overstate this. This is the single most important event in the history of the world. It is the single pivotal moment of history. Everything hinges on this. And yet for so many of us, we yawn. We're kind of bored. We've heard this a few times before, and so we shrug, we yawn. Yep, pastor, carry on. I've heard all this before. And when we're really honest with ourselves, we're almost bored by this narrative. In large part because as the church, we're so familiar with it. We're so familiar with the story of Christmas, the incarnation, that we all but take the single most important truth of history all but for granted. And so when the angel announced good news of great joy for all people, it remains strangely distant, if not entirely absent from our hearts. But let me say this. How miserably sad is it how, how just depressing is it if Jesus' own church, his bride, who he shed his blood for, is bored and apathetic about the fact that he came to save us all? My friends, if we can't get excited about this, who can? This is the truth that changes everything. And if we just go through the motions, apathetic, bored, ho-hum, another Christmas comes and goes, if that's us, if that describes you in any way this morning, something fundamental, I think, needs to change. Apathy needs to change. The Lord does not love apathy when it comes to the very thing that we should be most joyful about. And so if that describes your heart in any way this morning, recognize right now that God wants to change something in you about Christmas, and about the Incarnation. And so, in order to head in that direction and to highlight the good news that the angel declared for you one more time, let me ask you this question. What if Jesus had not come? 
What if Jesus had not come? Now, a number of years ago, a Christmas card company, they put out a Christmas card with that exact title. What if Christ had not come? And it was based on Jesus' words in John 15, verse 22, where he begins a statement by saying, if I had not come. Now, inside this Christmas card was written the story of an old preacher. And the old preacher had fallen asleep, and he dreamt of a world without Jesus. In his dream, he wakes up and he finds himself at home. He gets up and he starts looking through his house, and his calendar reads December 25th. But there are no stockings hung by the fireplace, no wreaths and no tree. There are no carolers singing outside, no bells ringing in the church steeples. In fact, he realized there were no churches at all. Suddenly, there was a knock at his door. A young man was there, and he asked the preacher if he would come to his house. His mother was sick and on her deathbed. Would the preacher come to share some words of comfort with her? And so the preacher, he picked up his Bible. But when he opened it and he looked for comforting scriptures, he noticed his Bible ended at Malachi. There was no New Testament. There were no Gospels, no Jesus, no cross, no resurrection. No hope that death was a defeated foe. No living hope of an eternal life with him. And finally, coming to the full realization that he was in fact living in a world in which Jesus had not come, all the old preacher could do was bow his head and weep bitterly. So let me ask you again. How would your life be different if Jesus had not come? Right now, today, how would your life have fundamentally changed if Jesus had not come? Well, for starters, we could say on the most basic level, you wouldn't be here in church today. But let's go deeper than that. For without Jesus... What would you do about your sins? Think about that. You would still be a sinner if Jesus had not come, but now you've got to do something about those sins on your own. What would you do with them? What would you do with your sins? And then beyond that, what would you do when you face your own death, your own mortality? What hope do you have for going into the grave and eternity beyond if Jesus had not come? In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 to 18, Paul wrote this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. At the double funeral of our dearly departed Susan Ingbrecht and her adult daughter Joanne, both of whom tragically died in a car crash back in 2007, It's hard to believe how many years have passed since then. But I will never forget, as I stood right here on this platform and led that service, looking out over this congregation, I'll never forget how I could visibly see the stark contrast between how followers of Jesus Christ mourn and how the close friends of Joanne, most of whom were not followers of Christ, how they mourned. For though we as a church family, yes, we naturally shed tears and we grieved. We hurt. When I looked at her friends, I saw a grief so raw, so bitter, so devoid of even the tiniest speck of hope, it almost broke my heart. And as I looked at them, it just immediately struck me that for them, death was final and utterly terrifying. 
For not only had death robbed them of their friend far before her time, upon further reflection I realized that for them her death was acting as a mirror on their own mortality. They looked at her and realized that, yes, we too are going to die. One day, maybe not soon, hopefully a long ways away, but it's going to come. And they had no means of coping with the reality of that fact. For my friends, without Jesus, there is no light, no hope, no joy, and nothing more than our wishful thinking to push back the darkness and finality of death and the grave. You hear it all the time. I hope I'll be good with God when I die. I think I'm a good person. And we, you know, people have that attitude and they face death with that attitude. Just a, a, a hope, a hope and maybe a prayer. But really, at the bottom of the day, the bottom of the barrel, what we're talking about here is people winging it going into eternity with very little to base that hope upon. And so when the angel declared to the shepherds that day, do not be afraid. Yes, of course, on the immediate level, he was talking about them being afraid of his glorious presence bursting on the scene unexpectedly. That's what he was referring to. But we can take that another way. Do not be afraid anymore of the grave, my friends. Why? Because of what the angel continues to say. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, listen to this, a Savior has been born. A Savior. And my friends, what better news could we possibly be given? Because they needed a Savior. Guess what? I need a Savior too. You need a Savior. We all need a Savior. We need someone who can take away our sins, save our soul, and yes, raise our lifeless bodies from the grave. We need a Savior who can do all of that and more. And thanks be to our gracious and loving God who has given us an all-sufficient Savior in the person of Jesus Christ the Lord. If that isn't enough to give you joy at Christmas time, I don't know what is. Because that's the basis for it all, my friends. If we don't have joy in having an all-sufficient Savior, then anything else this life can offer you is going to fall far short. Because Jesus is the Savior of the world. He came to save us from our sins, to save our souls. And yes, for that reason, my friends, there is great joy in my heart today. God has given us this Savior. In Jesus Christ. For Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, listen to this, in Christ all will be made alive. All. All includes me. I praise God for that. Verse 26 concludes, The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That, my friends, is joy. In Christ, all will be made alive. And that is why today, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're sitting in that pew right now, you know you've given your life to the Lord. He is your Savior. Then there is a deep wellspring of joy lying there in your heart, ready to be tapped into. Because if Jesus is there, your soul is saved, his joy is there. Not because of pretty decorations or presents under a tree, but because death is defeated, and now even the fear of death is gone. And I can honestly tell you, I can honestly tell you, 
that at Susan's funeral, beneath the shock and the sorrow of her being gone from our lives so suddenly, I still felt joy in my heart knowing that Susan is still very much alive in Jesus' presence. And I know a funeral service isn't typically thought of as a joyful place. That's not an occasion that most people associate with joy. But friends, for followers of Jesus Christ, that is exactly what a funeral is. It is a joyful celebration that our dearly departed is with the Lord. They have received their reward. And you know what? I can say since then, I have felt that same joy at every single funeral that I know for certain that the departed is a follower of Christ. Because I know they have gone home to Jesus. So my friends, joy comes not from presence but in the person of Jesus, our Savior, who has defeated the grave and ensured that we will be with him forever. But now, not only has Jesus guaranteed joy in the future, in eternity with him, he gives us joy in the present, but not in the way that we would expect. Number two, joy comes not in pleasure, but through pain. Let me say that again. You heard me right. Joy comes not in pleasure, but through pain. In John 15, 9-12, our scripture reading this morning, there's a few verses there. If you flip there in your Bibles, follow along. The context of this teaching, Jesus is speaking to his disciples just hours, minutes before being arrested and going on trial and going to the cross. And in this last night before, just moments before his betrayal, Jesus took that opportunity to instruct his disciples. They've left the upper room, and they're on their way to, or perhaps already in, the Garden of Gethsemane. And so in that context, Jesus says this to his disciples. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Now there's a lot going on in this passage, but I don't want you to miss this. Jesus was obeying his father perfectly By laying down his life. Therefore, Jesus was remaining in his father's perfect love. Okay? So his obedience to his father's will was linked to him remaining in his father's perfect love. And for that reason, Jesus' joy was complete. So if we're to break it down into a formula, obedience plus sacrifice plus abiding equals joy. Obedience plus sacrifice plus abiding in God's love equals joy. So Jesus, even in this place of trial where we know he's going to pray and he's going to sweat drops of blood, in this place, Jesus still has joy. Okay, get this. The outer circumstances are not good here and they're about to get a whole lot worse. But Jesus still has complete joy that he says, I'm going to give to you my disciples In this dark hour, I have joy to give to you. Now, how is this possible? Jesus 
was inviting his disciples to enter into and receive the same joy that he already possessed. But in order to receive the same joy of Jesus, the disciples had to follow the same formula. Obedience plus sacrifice plus abiding. There are no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. In the applause of heaven, Max Licato writes this. No man had more reason to be miserable than this one, yet no man was more joyful. His first home was a palace. Servants were at his fingertips. The snap of his fingers changed the course of history. His name was known and loved. He had everything, wealth, power, respect. And then he had nothing. Students of the event still ponder it. Historians stumble as they attempt to explain it. How could a king lose everything in one instant? One moment he was royalty, the next he was in poverty. His bed became at best a borrowed pallet and usually the hard earth. He never owned even the most basic mode of transportation and was dependent upon handouts for his income. He was sometimes so hungry he would eat raw grain or pick fruit off of trees. He knew what it was like to be rained on and to be cold. He knew what it meant to have no home. His palace grounds had been spotless. Now he was exposed to filth. He had never known disease, but was now surrounded by illness. In his kingdom, he had been revered. Now he was ridiculed. His neighbors tried to lynch him. Some called him a lunatic. His family tried to confine him to their house. Those who didn't ridicule him tried to use him. They wanted favors. They wanted tricks. He was a novelty. They wanted to be seen with him. That is, until being seen with him was out of fashion. Then they wanted to kill him. He was accused of a crime he never committed. Witnesses were hired to lie about him. And the jury was rigged. No lawyer was assigned to his defense. A judge swayed by politics handed down the death penalty. And finally they killed him. He left as he came, penniless. He was even buried in a borrowed grave, his funeral financed by compassionate friends. Though he once had everything, he died with nothing. He should have been miserable. He should have been bitter. He had every right to be a pot of boiling anger. But he wasn't. He was joyful. Sourpusses don't attract a following. People followed him wherever he went. Children avoid soreheads. Children scampered after this man. Crowds don't gather to listen to the woeful. Crowds clamored to hear him. Why? He was joyful. He was joyful when he was poor. He was joyful when he was abandoned. He was joyful when he was betrayed. He was even joyful as he hung on a tool of torture, his hands pierced with six-inch Roman spikes. Jesus embodied a stubborn joy, a joy that the world could not snuff out or eradicate, that Satan himself could not pluck from him, a joy that refused to bend in the wind of hard times and adversity, a joy that held its ground against all pain and all comers, a joy whose roots extended deep into the bedrock of eternity and into the Father Almighty himself. Hebrews 12.2 says this, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, 
scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, friends, don't miss this. Jesus, the Son of God, was perfect in every single way. Yet even for him, the pathway to joy eternal was through his obedience and sacrifice to the perfect will of God his Father. It's the same for us. It's the exact same for us. Obedience and sacrifice to the will of God leads to joy eternal. I know this seems counterintuitive. It seems upside down and backwards to find joy through obedience, let alone suffering. We sometimes even feel that God has given us this this list of things to do in the Bible. You know, things do this and don't do that. And it's a drudgery and we think of it like he's trying to limit our freedom and make us miserable and limit our fun. And all the while, at the same time, the world is telling us things like we can find joy in a can of Pepsi Cola or in in sex, in smoking marijuana, in indulging whatever carnal pleasures we can. That's what the world is telling us at the same time. But don't miss this. Jesus tells us, if you want my joy, eternal joy, complete joy, then fix your eyes on me. Follow my example. Obey my commands. Willingly sacrifice yourself on behalf of others so that, listen to this, the result is my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Complete. Lacking nothing. Perfect. Perfect joy. Complete joy. Comes through the pathway of obedience to God and the willingness to suffer on behalf of others. So let me ask you a very important question this morning. Are you lacking in joy? In any way, are you lacking in joy? When you look deep in your soul and your heart today, are you saying, I'm missing something here. I'm missing some joy. The Bible calls it the joy of the Lord. There's a verse that says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Are you lacking strength today? Trace it back to the source. Where is your joy? What is it founded? Are you lacking joy today? If so, I'm going to say this as humbly as possible. If you're lacking joy in any way, then chances are high. That's because you've been lacking in obedience and sacrifice to the will of God your Father. Connect the dots, my friends. If you're lacking in joy, Jesus links them to obedience and sacrifice. If you're lacking in joy, chances are you're lacking in obedience and sacrifice to the will of God, your Father. So let me encourage you this morning. If you want the joy of the Lord in your life, then follow Jesus' pathway of obedience to the will of God and the willingness to sacrifice to whatever end he would call you. Follow Jesus. He set the example. If we think we can do better than Jesus, then good luck at you know, good luck at that. But I'm guessing that's not going to get you very far. If you want the pathway to eternal joy, we have to follow Jesus' pathway. That's why the author of Hebrews says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. We have to watch what he did, then we have to follow his example. And this, my friends, will lead us to eternal joy, because in this we will find our highest purpose 
and fulfillment, which leads us right into our third and final point. And I'll be brief. John 18, Jesus is standing on trial before Pilate. In verse 37, we read this. So then Pilate said to him, You are a king after all. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this very reason I was born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to me. This is a key verse in Jesus' life because he clearly understood and declared the very reason that he was born was to testify to the truth of God, which for him meant not sitting around in heaven's glory, but coming down to earth to teach, serve, die, and rise again, all so that we might hear the truth, believe, be saved, and set free. And Jesus knew his purpose. He lived his purpose. He embodied his purpose in all that he said and did. He wasn't going to waste any energy on anything that was not related to his purpose in this life. And he embodied pure joy as a result. Leo Tolstoy said this, Joy can be real only if people look upon their life as a service and have a definite object in life outside of themselves and their personal happiness. And this is our third point. Joy comes not in passivity, but in purpose. Jesus fully understood and lived out his purpose. He didn't do it passively. He did it actively. And this completed his joy. And he wants his followers, us, his disciples, to also know our purpose so that we can share in his joy. So here's our purpose, in case you were wondering. Back to John 15, verses 16 to 17, Jesus continues to say to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. So as a follower of Jesus, you have been chosen by him and appointed by him to go and bear fruit that will last. Now, the lasting fruit that Jesus is principally referring to here is souls that are saved for eternity. So our purpose is to actively engage in whatever we can that will help bring people to salvation in Jesus, who then mature in the faith, are discipled, and grow to go and do the same. So what this is teaching us is that in order for us to have Jesus' joy, passivity is not an option. It's just not We must actively obey Jesus' appointed purpose for our lives. And simply sitting in a church pew every couple of weeks is not what Jesus was talking about here, my friends. Worship is important. Don't get me wrong. I'm going to be the first one to say being in church is super important to the Christian life. But if that's all you think it is, showing up in church once in a while, no, it's so much more than that. I like how George Bernard Shaw puts it. This is the true joy in life. That being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one. That being thoroughly worn out before you are thrown on the scrap heap. And being a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. Which one describes you, my friends? Are you complaining because the world is not devoting itself to making you happy? Or do you see in your life a purpose greater than your happiness, greater than yourself, that you have something so high a calling that that it infuses your every day with meaning and purpose? My friends, if we want this kind of joy, we must actively engage in our God-given, Jesus-appointed 
purpose, the mission to save the world. He has appointed us to it, and as we do, we will know joy. Eternal joy that springs up like a well today and will grow and grow into eternity. And so as we close this morning, I want to give you an invitation. I want to invite you to receive joy. I want to invite you to receive joy, not as the world gives it, but as Jesus offered it to his disciples that night. Joy through the pathway of obedience to the perfect will of the Father and through the willingness to suffer to whatever end. Not, not, the, not the world's joy through a can of Pepsi-Cola. My friends, the joy of Jesus. And so I invite you this morning, bow with me. And in your own heart, I want you to put... As you see fit, in your own words, pray along with me this prayer if the Lord has been speaking to your heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, scorning its shame, and you sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so we open our hearts before you. We confess, Lord, our selfishness. We confess our selfish pleasure-seeking. And yes, we confess our apathy and our passivity to living out our purpose. We confess, Lord, where we have been disobedient to your commands. We humbly ask for your forgiveness. And Lord Jesus, now we choose to follow your example, your pathway of obedience to the perfect will of the Father, and the willingness to sacrifice ourselves for the good of others. And so we ask that in doing so, will your spirit so fill us that your joy will rise up like a spring that will never end, that it would flood our souls, our hearts, our minds, and flow outward, so that others will know the joy that can be found only in you, our God, and our mighty, all-sufficient Savior. And we pray this, Lord, for your glory, for our good, and so that others may know. In your name, amen.